Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is Unveiling the Secrets of the Psyche, Pierre Genet, Sigmund Freud, and Carl Jung. With me today is Adam Crabtree, a person who's been a guest several times on New Thinking Aloud in the past. Adam is a founding faculty member at the Center for Training and Psychotherapy based in Toronto. He is the author of many books, including Multiple Man, Explorations in Possession and Multiple Personality, From Mesmer to Freud, Magnetic Sleep and the Roots of Psychological Healing. He is a contributing author to Irreducible Mind Toward a Psychology for the 21st Century, and he is Associate Editor of Beyond Physicalism Toward Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality. He is author of The Land of Hypnagogia, and he has recently completed a two-volume translation of Pierre Genet's classic book, Psychological Automatism. Adam is based in Toronto, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Adam. What a pleasure to be with you again. It's great to be with you also, Jeff. Congratulations on this translation, I believe, the first time into the English language of uh, Janae's masterpiece on psychological automatism. It's been uh, a long time coming. Indeed it has. I'm, uh, I'm glad you're enjoying it, Jeff. Why don't we begin uh, with a little biographical background on Janae? I think even though he's acknowledged as one of the founders of uh, Western psychology, and particularly the psychology of the unconscious and Western psychotherapy, his name isn't remembered the way we think of Freud and Jung. No, it is not. When I began working as a psychotherapist uh, 50, over 50 years ago, um, nobody heard about Janet. That was in the 1960s, in the late 60s. Nobody had heard of Genet, and it was all Freud. If, if you were psychodynamic, that is, if you worked with the unconscious, it was Freud or a bit of Jung. But Genet was basically unknown. And it's only really in the 1980s, the mid-1980s, that people started to become aware again of Genet, because he's always been around, if you wanted to find him, but to actually bring him into the forefront of thinking about psychotherapy. That was about the mid-1980s, and I connect that with the fact that so much more was being found out about dissociation, dissociative disorders, traumatic effects uh, within dissociation, and multiple personality. Those things are all really being investigated very hotly, you might say, at that time. And I recall that one whole uh, issue of the Journal of the American um, Journal of Clinical Hypnosis was about Genet in 1986. 
So to me, that was a sign, that was a, sort of the point where a, a significant shift happened. And I had known about him before uh, because I was studying multiple personality, and I, of course, came across him then, but not as a popular figure. It was in 1980s that I was very much involved also with writing and working with multiple personality. So even more for me, I was gratified to see that people were starting to notice him because I knew that he was the person who had the greatest, uh, or the, the most important and effective system for understanding how dissociation works, how dissociative disorder develops, and what multiple personality actually is. So I kn knew him, and but I knew I could read some French. <laughs> and I knew that almost none of my colleagues could read French, which meant they, they knew nothing about Genet, and I couldn't recommend anything to them because very little of him was in English. So I had, it had been on my mind for quite some time to try to find a way to get Genet translated into English. And, uh, I talked to a friend in Belgium, Ono van der Hart, who was also very much aware of Genet and important in developing ideas of dissociation. And, uh, we tried some years ago to get a translation going, but we couldn't. And so finally, a few years ago, he and I talked and he asked if I would translate it. I hadn't thought about doing that because I thought that was too big a job, <laughs> frankly. But, uh, I decided, yeah, okay. And I, I, then I came across or met my translation partner, whose name is Sarah Osei Banzu who's a wonderful uh, partner in translation, and we started doing it. And we, it took us about a year, year and a half to do the translation. And now it's available from L Rutledge. Unfortunately, uh, well, I don't know if it's, a, to me it's sort of strange that Rutledge published it in two volumes rather than one, because it was one volume originally. And the title that they gave it was the titles of the two halves, which is not the original title of the book, which was Psychological Automatism. Yes, I want to go back to Janae, however. I think yep. uh, most people don't know, for example, that he preceded both Jung and Freud. Oh, yes, absolutely. He was, he was the one who opened the door to uh, understanding the unconscious the door that was first opened by Puiseguer, but he's the one who really delved through that door and began exploring from a psychological and from a psychotherapeutic point of view what Puiseguer had brought into view. The Marquis de Puiseguer in 1784 wrote a book called his Memoirs of Working with Artificial Somnambulism. And that was the work that really affected Genet. Genet, in 1924, looking back, said, "That's those are my roots. My roots are in animal magnetism and artificial somnambulism, which started with Puiseguer in 1784. Um, and he uh, had studied that work and 
he saw how the awareness that there's a second self within individuals, a second self different from their normal self that is always operating in, in their unconscious or what he came to call a subconscious mind. Well, I know we've done a previous interview on Fusegir and his yes. connection to Mesmer and uh, the important yes. work he did, uh, particularly the important work he did in showing that uh, what we now call the hypnotic state was conducive to clairvoyance. So, so I'm going to link to that earlier interview in case our viewers are, are interested in it. They can uh, look in the upper right-hand corner of their screen, and most viewers will be able to link directly to that interview on Pusegir. He's a very, very important figure. But uh, in terms of 20th century psychology uh, of the unconscious, we think of Jung and we think of Freud. And Genet gets forgotten, but he was really the inspiration to both of those men. That's right. You're absolutely right. It's really in the last few years, Genet has actually been remembered and it is coming to the fore. Um, he is talked about whenever anybody discusses dissociation from a depth point of view, Genet will be remembered now. That wasn't true a few years ago. So there's a definite progress there. And, and I think another key factor about Genet is that the therapy he developed, which was quite effective, is based on what we would now call hypnosis. And for reasons of their own, both Freud and Jung started in that area, but they abandoned hypnosis for methods that they developed. That's very, very true. Um, they abandoned hypnosis. Um, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I have read that Freud found it awkward and difficult to use hypnosis, didn't feel comfortable with it. And Jung was working so uh, deeply with the collective unconscious that he really did not pay too much attention to artificial somnambulism or hypnosis. Artificial somnambulism was the term that uh, Genet was using in, in his day. He used that and it began, that term started with the Marquis de Puiségur. Who really uh, learned animal magnetism from Mesmer. He learned animal magnetism from Mesmer. And when he began practicing it for using Mesmer's healing passes or movements of the hands over the body, um, some of the people he was working with became, uh, went into states that he did not recognize and that Mesmer said nothing about. These were states where they seemed to be asleep, but they were actually able to communicate with him, speak with him, and they were able to hear him and understand and also follow his instructions as he was working on healing them. He noted this state that it was very unusual, and so he started to pursue an investigation of this state. He would ask the person that he was using the magnetic healing on what they were experiencing, what they were thinking, and if they had anything to say about their illness or about the 
treatment of their illness or the course of their illness. And he found that this state, in this state, they could say a great deal. And actually, they were able to do what he called seeing clearly or clairvoyance. That was the term that he used. And through that clairvoyant faculty, identify their illness and identify treatment for their illness and the course that their illness would take before it was uh, had run its course. This is what you would call a trance state. It is a trance state in my, in my understanding of the term, yes. It's a state where a person is put in touch with the depths of themselves that they cannot ordinarily reach in their ordin in their usual waking state. And he recognized that depth almost immediately. He had attended a, a uh, it was a sort of a lecture, a series of lectures by Mesmer that taught him how to use Mesmer's approach. And when he used it, he immediately saw that what he was discovering was something more than Mesmer had been aware of. And that was what he labeled magnetic somnambulism and artificial somnambulism. Now, and to give our viewers a sense of the time, I know that Mesmer was a contemporary of the American founding fathers. He was a, an 18th century figure. Pusigir uh, was a bit younger. He was, he was a bit younger, yes. Um, they were almost, they were very close in age. Um, but Pusigir was, 30 years old when he went to Mesmer's seminar, teaching seminar. He was 30 years old. And when you think about that fact alone, that's really something because such a young man making such a huge discovery. But anyway, the, the, eight, the American Revolution had already happened and the French, uh, society was being stirred up towards their own revolution, which would happen in 1789. And so that was the atmosphere in which Prisigir was working and within which he made his, his discovery. It, there was a lot of turmoil and there was a lot of, um, it was also a time where what we might call amateur science which was really the science of the time, but we would call amateurs because it was done not so much in universities, but in different people's private laboratories. Uh, that was at its height. And it was, it was shifting now to the scientific discoveries and what today we would call not amateur, but professional science. All that was occurring at the very same time as Puisigur was making his discovery. Which would have been in the, the late 18th century, maybe the early 19th century. And as, as I recall, Janet was born in 1859. 59, correct, yes. And he died in 1946. He lived a long mm -hmm. life and he wrote a lot of things. And, and so, but there was a gap of close to a hundred years between Pusigir's discovery and Janet's 
beginning to work with the same ideas and, and implement them. That's right. And there's another hundred years gap to our beginning to recognize the importance of Genet. So we ha we're having century movements here, century by century. <laughs> And as you were saying, Janae used the same language as Pusigir, artificial somnambulism, which means sleepwalking. It does. And the reason he called it that was this state that he discovered that I just briefly described very much resembled what people understood sort of in the folk uh, thinking of the time. They called it somnambulism, that is sleepwalking. And what today we still call sleepwalking. Uh, I know my, uh, at least one of my children was a sleepwalker when he was very young. Uh, but sleepwalking is a part of natural developments of some people that usually if they sleepwalk when they're children, uh, it often passes away and they stop when they're adults. I was a sleepwalker myself. And I think the last time I remember doing it, I was in university. So uh, there, there was this natural thing that people knew about, and he saw that there were important ways this discovery of this new state, this uncharted state of, of somnambulism, uh, was uh, rightly named somnambulism, but artificial somnambulism, because it was brought about not by chance, by nature, by sort of unpredictable uh, circumstances of life, but rather he had a technique where he could bring it about, make it happen at will. And if you think of the power of that step of being able to bring it about at will, and then study it and repeat it and and bring it about in different subjects it, as object of study and developing ideas around that state. This was a huge um, step forward in the understanding of the dynamics of the human psyche. Janet also reported, at least in his early career, clairvoyance associated with this state. Yes, he did. And he, in the, in the book we translated, his, um, I, I'm thinking about how he used this. He had a couple of chapters where he talks a great deal about spiritualism and about mediumship and about clairvoyance as it is as it exists in the practice of spiritualism of his time. And so this was a familiar term to him. But unfortunately, Genet um, was hesitant not to accept the phenomena of spiritualism, but hesitant to accept their explanation of it. Um, that's not unfortunate in itself, but uh, he did have a kind of skepticism that I think made him lean certain ways when he was working out his theories um, that, that narrowed his view of what psychology needed to explain and how the psyche 
how the depths of the psyche show themselves. I think it's fair to say that Jung and Freud both also struggled with this issue. They were both fascinated by the occult and the esoteric and things such as clairvoyance, but at the same time, they're trying to establish psychotherapy as a profession, as a as a science. And and I think uh, all three of these individuals were afraid of uh, alienating their colleagues, particularly Freud. Absolutely, Jung was a little more bold, I, I would say, uh, but. Jung was just, Jung followed his nose. He, he followed where, where experiences led him much more than Freud. Freud did that too, of course, but there were certain doors that he said should kept, be kept closed because it would be dangerous for the development of his system and of his ideas if they were, if he was associated with things having to do with the paranormal. Yeah, that's unfortunate because, uh, at least to my way of thinking, you really aren't going to understand normal consciousness until you have a grip on the paranormal side of things. Absolutely. I agree you and agree with you. And absolutely, I have to give credit to Genet, who said, we need to listen to these experiences that spiritualists have. They're not making them up. They're not faking them. These are real psychological experiences that can tell us things about the subconscious mind and how dissociation works in individuals. So he was, he was open to the data. It's, it's his, his sort of almost fear of committing to any sort of explanation deeper explanation for the data. That's where he hesitated. And, you know, he had a good way out. He just said, I'm not a philosopher, so I, I'm not really qualified to comment on these things. Um, but I, I'm glad to use the data that it's producing. Now, you've used the term dissociation many times already in our conversation, and I know our viewers will have a sense of what multiple personality is, but uh, let's see if we can define dissociation a little more clearly. Yes, dissociation is the ability that we have uh, to separate pieces of experience one from the other. We can experience, have an experience in one situation and it's a part of our lives and it's part of our memories. And then we go to another situation, very different situation, and we might be very different in the way we handle that situation. And our memory for the first situation might be sort of vague because we're now in a different state. So we have this ability to De, uh, to produce different states that are separable from each other. It's natural. Uh, it's not a pathology. It's only a problem when the separation takes place because a defensive maneuver is taking place within the subconscious of the person where um, a particular set of experiences is associated with trauma. And so to protect oneself from experiencing or re-experiencing the trauma, that 
situation is separated off, and that's what dissociation is. It's the separation process. One of the things, one of the ways that I, uh, I agree with everything Janae said about that, but one of the ways I go, I don't know if I'm going to say beyond or wider, I, I, my view is wider than Janae's, and that is that I believe that dissociation is not inevitably linked to pathology. Really, Genet thought it was. Um, and this led to a lot of sort of, I think, rigid approaches to his theory, where he has to explain everything in terms of pathology. I think that's an unfortunate mistake. Where, where I myself, um, took another step, let's say, beyond Genet's ideas, was to say, was to talk about trances or artificial somnambulism states, but I call them trances, as something that's a part of normal human experience and experiences that we have in everyday life. So I've taken a lot of the ideas of Genet and spread them uh, with a wider focus, a wider scope. And I think that's the way it really is. I think that multiplicity, human multiplicity, is normal. And it's only pathological when it has to deal with unresolved uh, elements of experience in a person's life. Well, I gather that while Freud and, and Jung uh, gave some passing reference to the issue of dissociation and multiple personality, for the most part, they both glossed over uh, its implications. Yes, I, I agree with that. I think that this is a problem with, and you see it in, in a sort of a dispute that took place between Jung and Freud. Um, Freud said that we have only one consciousness and that consciousness is like a searchlight that we direct now on this set of mental activities and now a different set of mental activities. And, but consciousness itself is not associated with those mental activities necessarily. He saw, he said that mental events are in the first instance unconscious. And then we make them conscious by directing our attention to it. And this is so different from Genet, who said all mental units that we have have consciousness associated with them. And often they have also each one a sense of identity. A second, they become like a secondary self that exists in the subconscious mind a secondary personality, a secondary identity. And there can be many of those secondary selves um, operating in the subconscious mind without our realizing it. And this gave Genet a tremendously powerful system for dealing with dissociative disorders and specifically multiple personality, which is on the extreme end of the 
um, spectrum of dissociative disorders where the dissociated identities actually take on a life of their own peri- periodically or cyclically within one individual. That's multiple personality in, in, in the full sense of the word, and that's the extreme end of dissociative identity disorder. I guess it might be fair to say that Carl Jung, with his theory of archetypes, comes a little bit closer to Janet's model of the psyche. Indeed, and his idea of complexes is very close to Janet's no- notion of this in these individual identities within a person, where they, those identities for Jung build around certain uh, archetypes. He says they have an archetypal core. His complexes have an archetypal core, but they are individual, and each individual has many complexes, and those complexes have a sense of a feeling of identity, like they are personalities. He learned this, I think, largely from Genet because he studied with Genet and he very much appreciated Genet. Unlike Freud, he was a felt a kindred spirit in Genet. I gather that Freud, uh, in his early years, acknowledged the debt he owed to Janet, but uh, a conflict developed between them. Yes, the conflict was about, uh, formulated this way by Janet. Janet said that, uh, Freud came along and saw what he was, what he, Janet, was doing and thought it was good, but then he began doing the same thing and um, giving the impression that he was the first to do it. So it was a matter of priority. Who was the first for developing these ideas having to do with what Jung called, or sorry, what uh, Genet called the subconscious and what Freud called the unconscious. Um, Genet, I think, would say that there's very little um, original in Freud. Very little he did not get from himself. And this was something that was argued out uh, in conferences and in articles and journals and so forth. Uh, I wouldn't say that it was ever resolved. Freud took offense at the idea that uh, Janet basically claimed that, that Freud was plagiarizing him. Yes, that's basically what he was doing, what he was claiming. And uh, Freud, uh, Freud indeed did take offense, yes. That developed, a, you, you might say, a, a major split in the psychodynamic movement. Yes, it was a split in, the, in the sort of in the loyalties, but also I wonder how much uh, it explained the fact that Freud simply could not accept the business of multiple identities in one individual. Um, or dissociative parts, let's say, uh, that maybe that would seem like too much of a, of a, uh, giving over of credit to Genet, which he was not happy to do. It also strikes me that when it comes to the philosophical question about the ontological reality of spirit entities, 
autonomous spirit entities that the idea of uh, autonomous uh, subpersonalities uh, is is very attractive. Well, it, it is indeed, and and I know that you know this because I've talked about it on your programs. But uh, Frederick Myers and Genet were friends, and they worked together with psychological experiments. Um, but there was were also ways that Myers saw Genet's approach, as I do as somewhat too limited in, in certain areas. And Myers had a view of uh, individual personalities that might make up a set of dissociative personalities and spiritualist entities. He said they come from the same place. Now, he wasn't ready to say that, that all spiritual entities are simply dissociative um, uh, identities coming from trauma, but he recognized that some of those identities are that rather than independently existing entities. But Myers had no problem, if the evidence was there for him, he had no problem accepting the fact that there are or can be uh, entities that understood the way spiritualists do, that they, they are independent, that they are the, you might say, the soul of an individual that is there also so, uh, and can survive death. So all, there are many ways in which Myers and Genet helped each other and agreed with each other. But in that area, that area of the nature of these part personalities, these secondary personalities. They had differences. We should talk a bit about the form of psychotherapy that Janae developed. I'm under the impression it must be very similar to the psychotherapy that you practice and, and that you think it's really a, a better model for psychotherapy than either Jungian or Freudian approaches. Uh, yes, I do. Um, I think that Janae had such great there was such great power in his in his ideas that he's affected my thinking very much. So that when I began thinking about and then writing about the history of hypnosis and the nature of hypnosis, I was certainly much affected by Genet's ideas. But I thought it was possible to be more inclusive in understanding that altered state of consciousness, that alternate consciousness that we have, that secondary self that, that we have, that it could be more broadly understood. And that therapy, if it would take that into account, could become much more effective. And what I mean is this. Um, if individuals realize that they naturally dissociate in their lives, that dissociation is a part of living and it is, and it's something that actually makes living possible. If we had everything that we know and feel coming in on us at once, we would be very confused. We could hardly live. So we have to separate off pieces of existence from each other. And that's something that it helps for clients to know. And that then gives them uh, the opportunity to take a further step of saying you can separate off 
pieces of existence in such a way that they're no longer known to you, no longer a part of your awareness, but still affecting you. And that a good part of therapy is to deal with those dissociated aspects or parts and to find out how they originated and see how to heal them. So I think that this is a very effective way to do therapy. And for that reason, in my work, I often use uh, hypnosis or you might say artificial somnambulism, but I understand it more broadly as I have explained. And so I've come in, in the latter decades of my work, I've come to realize that when we do therapy at all, if, if the two people sitting together in a room speaking about the, the uh, difficulties that the client is having, both the therapist and the client go into a trance state. Both of us sort of remove distractions of other things, the environment and the rest of our lives, to concentrate on this limited matter of concern that the client brings in. And that is what I see as the very definition of hypnosis. And that is, it's a state of high concentration and obliviousness to other things that are not a part of that focus, which then enables the unconscious or the subconscious to bring forward elements that are ordinarily not available. And bringing forward those things can also make it possible to heal whatever of them might be uh, causing trouble or inner conflict, pain. I'm under the impression, Adam, that outside of the therapeutic context, uh, the idea of uh, the the power of these subpersonalities can, can be uh, a way for people to get in touch with their own hidden genius. I've seen, for example, uh, people under hypnosis who have a, a certain amount of musical talent could be put into a trance state and, and told to compose a con piano concerto, for example, in the style of Mendelssohn. And they can sit down and, and without any rehearsal or uh, any thought, they just spontaneously uh, compose a piano concerto. Yes, I've, I've heard of those people too. Um, and I know that uh, some of them, there are controversies around them, of course, as, as you know. Uh, that if, if a person does that, if they produce some creative piece that's very much in the style of some known, uh, musician, um, if, if that musician is, has departed and is no longer with us, sometimes it is felt that this represents that individual taking over an aspect of the person and sort of playing through them. Oh, that's a, like a spiritualist way of looking at this. Uh, a non-spiritualist way of looking at this, I suppose a way that perhaps Genet would look at it would be, well, you know, they've heard this, the compositions of this person. This is 
something they've absorbed into their subconscious mind, and they have a talent for translating uh, such uh, feelings and memories of hearing pieces into a, something that very much reflects or resembles what they have heard and the style of the people that they have uh, had that experience with. But there's, there's a further thing about creativity I'd like to say right here. And that is that it is be, one of the reasons that Myers and, and Genet so early said, we must not look at human beings as having only one mind. And that is what we, the conscious mind, what we think of ourselves to, as being. Uh, you can't explain human experience in its depth in terms of one mind. We have many minds, said Myers. This is Myers now. Genet say at least we, at least two. Uh, minds. And that means that there are intelligent and even creative things happening outside of the awareness of the person in their ordinary state. And it's that ferment that's happening on a subconscious level that can produce creative uh, products. And that if you're going to explain creativity, Genet and Myers would say, you, you, you better not try to do it with just thinking that everything we know is conscious, that we have only the conscious mind. There are subconscious minds, and these can be the sources, uh, or put it this way, their existence can be a way of explaining how creative products seem often to come from somewhere else. They seem to be, or in the case of Mozart describing his experience with creating music, they, they seem to, that you're hearing them fully completed. And Mozart said his great strength was his musical memory. He could hear something and then write it down. That was what he was doing, but he was hearing something already existing. That, I should say, there are many, not only musicians, but painters, writers, and other creative people who feel the same way, who experience the same way. It's not, it's an important, it's not just a philosophical idea that makes them think this way. This is the way they experience creative productions, that they come from somewhere else and they can't explain why they took this particular form. But the great creators of the world, uh, simply let that whatever is there, come through them, rather than preventing it, rather than saying, I don't understand this, I can't, uh, I'm not going to accept it, rather than they become something like cha channels for this. Uh, you know, Hoki Carmichael, who I've become very interested in recently, I he wrote something, uh, he was asked to 
write, or he was asked to come into a class, university class, to talk about songwriting. And Hokey Carmichael, for those who don't know, um, was one of the great songwriters of the 20th century. Um, American, grew up in Indiana, who started writing songs when he was in his early 20s and wrote many songs that most people will recognize and don't, they don't know that it was, they were written by Hoagie Carmichael. Stardust, for instance, or The Nearness of You, or there, there are so many songs that, that he wrote, great songs that were hits. Now, what he wrote when he, in response to being asked to talk about this to a class, he said, I won't be able to make it, unfortunately. But let me say this for the, for the people in the class. Um, it, when you, the song is already there and it's lying there in the keys and it's waiting for you to discover it. But he was a piano player, see, so that's, that's the way he would put it. It's in the keys. And just let it come. Find it in the keys. And when you find it, let it take its own course. Don't stop it. Don't inhibit it in any way. Just let it take its own course. And he says, and if the um, you're writing a song where someone has already written the, the words, he said, speak the words and use the tones or the relationship of tones in, when you speak it in in your feeling bring that into the feeling of, of writing as the song develops so he had this sense something was happening through him uh, and he was just sort of the um, what would you say he had the technical side of it ready to be able to put it into words or words and music, of course. It seems very similar to Michelangelo talking about the, the statue is already in the marble. Yes, it's very much like that, yeah. So what you're suggesting, though, is that this part, that we all have some part of ourselves of which we are totally unaware and has the potential for genius. Absolutely. And that it's ingenious that that we see all, almost most clearly the depth of the human psyche. Um, it the people who are able actually to translate that and let it come through tell us a story of uh, tell us uh, paint a picture you might say of the human psyche and the depth of the human psyche. Um, I believe that it's it's a unfortunate mistake that, uh, okay, I'm going to be a little critical here. It's an unfortunate mistake that psychoanalysis has become so powerful a force in our understanding of ourselves. I think it's also very fortunate that it did. Uh, the ideas there did become uh, part of our culture, but it's unfortunate that it has become so powerful. And I, I see that I see it sort of uh, struggling to hang on to its power in terms of explanatory systems for the human psyche. I see that it has wants to remain, psychoanalysis wants to remain in a position of preponderance in culture, the culture that it has to do with psychology and with psychotherapy. And in my mind, psychoanalysis, 
And also like Genet, don't go to the greatest depths of the human psyche. The greatest depths, we're still discovering what they are. And one of the places where we are discovering the greater depths of the human psyche is precisely in the creative people, in music, in the arts. Um, there we see something that we can't yet put into words, into a system. We can't put it into a philosophy because it's beyond philosophy. Whatever is there in the depths producing all this, you can never exhaust in words or through theories. It can only be at this time of our development or our evolution, it could only be really um, in any way adequately felt is in the arts more than anywhere else. That's my belief in it. Well, I guess it's fair to say, uh, to his credit, that, that Freud brought out the idea of our hidden aggression, our hidden sexual drives, the things that are unacceptable to society. Uh, and Jung emphasized the shadow, the dark side, uh, that in order to get to the, this creative potential, one needs to sometimes move through the shadow. Absolutely. I completely agree with you, Jeffrey. I certainly don't want to downplay the importance of the discoveries of Freud or of Jung or anyone else, for that matter, in the field of psychotherapy. I'm, my problem is where I see elements of, of, uh, the attempt to gain predominance or to have power rather than simply elucidating and letting others, you know, profit from that. Um, I had this experience many years ago when my sister was being, uh, was graduating from the chiropractic school. And um, the, the person who was giving the talk at the school was the head of the American Chiropractic Association. And he said, well, you know, you have to, once you're graduating now, but you have to go on learning. You must keep yourself open to the process of learning about chiropractic. But remember, read only those books that are approved by the American Chiropractic Association. And I thought, okay, this is what you, this is what happens. The chiro chiropractors have always been a fringe, right? And once they start feeling uh, sort of accepted, then they want to exercise power. And I think that's what happens. The, the great discoveries are fringe because they happen outside of the systems that are in power. But once that new wonderful discovery is come to some kind of fruition in society, there's a tendency to want to take power through it. And that's where all anything can become a rigidity, can become frozen. Uh, although at one time it may have been wonderfully free. I feel the same way about parapsychology. Uh, as a matter of fact, Adam, I I feel that one of the the, the great shames of our culture, particularly the social sciences, is the denial, the studied denial of parapsychology. And yet, I also note that within the parapsychological community, you have a 
studied denial of other fringe phenomena, things associated with the paranormal that are uh, too far out even for the parapsychologists. Yes, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I see no examples of that myself. Absolutely. It, I think it can happen with anything that has some uh, real value and comes from something really deep in individuals. When In its first stages, it's closest to the arts. And then it starts to become systematized. And then it becomes rigidified. And then the matter of taking power uh, is seems like it's the logical next step in almost... Maybe it happens in all human uh, undertakings. I think there's a certain fear of uh, just like being completely open to the universe because maybe it stems back to an ancient terror of the demonic. Oh, yes, yes. I think that's very true. The terror of the demonic, however, is very misplaced. You know, Nietzsche said, when you look into the abyss, don't forget the abyss is looking into you. Um, the abyss is frightening. The, in other words, if you look at our depth as an abyss, that is, we have explored perhaps 5% of it or perhaps not that much. So, so much of it is unknown and can seem terrible, terrible, terribly in the sense of, uh, awesome, so awesome as to be frightening. And that is one of the reasons why so few people look into the abyss and let the creativity come through with all of its power. Because the abyss itself seems so terrible and frightening in its unknownness. Not that the abyss contains terrible things. I don't believe it does. I don't at all believe it does. But I believe that the unknown that's where our imagination comes into play and makes it frightening in the negative sense of the word. Evil, the notion of evil. Uh, I find it very difficult to have a, a notion of evil in an absolute sense of the word. There certainly are, is evil, and there certainly are evil acts. But the thinking there's some kind of incarnate evil, I find impossible to accept that absolutely my actually myself well it's a very deep topic adam and uh, i we, we could do a whole other hour on uh, just the problem of evil in in the world yes. Uh, yes. It, and it is a topic i have done other interviews on on this channel uh, but what we have uh, looked at so far is a, a broad picture of the dynamics of the psyche as explored particularly by Janae and also modified uh, in their own ways by Freud and Jung. Yes. It's a wonderful vision, especially because Janae being one of the the real fathers of all of this work who preceded Freud and Jung, along with Myers, who also preceded Freud and Jung, uh, is, is a forgotten figure. Yes, yes. The first academic book I wrote, um, From Mesmer to Freud, I have a whole chapter on, on Myers because I knew he was so 
unknown, but so very, very important. Uh, even at his time, people knew that he was important. Well, Adam Crabtree, once again, thank you so much for being with me today. This has been a, a very thoughtful and elegant presentation, and I hope we have many more. Me too. And thank you for inviting me, Jeff. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. You are the reason that we are here. I imagine that by now many of you already realize that, in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death?